Everybody dies, don't they? Couching at the Door by D.K. Broster. 1. The first inkling which Augustine Marchant had of the matter was on one fine summer morning about three weeks after his visit to Prague, that is to say, in June 1898. He was reclining, as his custom was when writing his poetry, on the very comfortable sofa in his library at Abbot's Medding, near the French windows, one of which was open to the garden. Pausing for inspiration, he was nearly at the end of his poem, Salutation to All Unbeliefs, he let his eyes wander round the beautifully appointed room, with its cloisonné and satsuma, boule and first editions, and then allowed them to stray towards the sunlight outside. And so, between the edge of the costly herat carpet and the sill of the open window, across the strip of polished oak flooring, he observed what he took to be a small piece of dark fluff blowing in a draught, and instantly made a note to speak to his housekeeper about it. There was slackness somewhere, and in Augustine Marchant's house no one was allowed to be slack but himself. There had been a time when the poet would not for a moment have been received, as he was now in country and even county society. Those days, even before the advent of the Yellow Book and the Savoy, when he had lived in London, writing the plays and poems which had so startled and shocked all but the decadent and the advanced. Pomegranates of Sin, Queen Theodora and Queen Marosia, the Knights of the Tour de Nestle, Amor Capriacus, and the rest. But when, as the nineties began to wane, he inherited Abbot's Medding from a distant cousin and came to live there, being then at the height of an almost international reputation, Wiltshire society at first tolerated him for his kinship with the late Lord Medding, and then placated by the excellence of his dinners, and further mollified by the patent staidness of his private life, decided that in his personal conduct, at any rate, he must have turned over a new leaf. Perhaps, indeed, he had never been as bad as he was painted, and if his writings continued to be no less scandalously free and free-thinking than before, and needed to be just as rigidly kept out of the hands of daughters, well, no country gentleman in the neighbourhood was obliged to read them. And indeed, Augustine Marchant, in his fifty-first year, was too keenly alive to the value of the good opinion of county society to risk shocking it by any overt doings of his. He kept his license for his pen, when he went abroad, as he did at least twice a year, but that was another matter altogether. The nose of Mrs. Grundy was not sharp enough to smell out his occupations in Warsaw, or Berlin, or Naples. Her eyes long-sighted enough to discern what kind of society he frequented, even so near home as Paris. At Abbot's Medding, his reputation for being wicked was fast declining into just enough of a sensation to titillate a croquet party. He had charming manners, could be witty at moments, though he could not keep it up, still retained his hyacinthine locks uh, by means of hair restorers, wore his excellently cut velvet coats and flowing ties with just the right air, half poet, half man of the world, 
and really had, at Abbott's Medding, no dark secret to hide beyond the fact, sedulously concealed by him for five and twenty years, that he had never been christened Augustine. Between Augustus and Augustine, what a gulf! But he had crossed it, and his French poems, which had to be smuggled into his native land, were signed Augustin, Augustin le Marchand, removing his gaze from the objectionable evidence of domestic carelessness upon the floor, Mr. Marchant now fixed it meditatively upon the ruby-set end of the gold pencil which he was using. Russell and Ward, his publishers, were about to bring out an edition de luxe of Queen Theodora and Queen Marosia with illustrations by a hitherto unknown young artist, if they were not too daring, it would be a sumptuous affair in a limited edition, and as he thought of this, the remembrance of his recent stay in Prague returned to the poet. He smiled to himself, as a man smiles when he looks at a rare wine and thought, yes, if these blunt-witted Pharisees round Abbot's Medding only knew. It was a good thing that the upholders of British petty morality were seldom great travellers, a dispensation of... Uh, Providence. Twiddling his gold pencil between plump fingers, Augustine Marchant returned to his ode, weighing one epithet against another. Except in summer he was no advocate of open windows, and even in summer he considered that to get the most out of that delicate and precious instrument his brain, his feet must always be kept thoroughly warm. He had therefore cast over them before settling into his semi-reclining position a beautiful rose-coloured Indian sari of the purest and thickest silk, leaving the ends trailing on the floor, and he became aware, with surprise and annoyance, that the piece of brown fluff, or whatever it was down there, travelling in the draught from the window, had reached the nearest end of the sari, and was now, impelled by the same current, travelling up it. The master of Abbot's Medding reached out for the silver handbell on the table by his side. There must be more breeze coming in than he had realised, and he might take cold, a catastrophe against which he guarded himself as against the plague. Then he saw that the upward progress of the dark blot, it was about the size of a farthing, could not by any possibility be assigned to any other agency than its own. It was climbing up. Some horrible insect, plainly, some disgusting kind of almost legless and very hairy spider, round and vague in outline. The poet sat up and shook the sari violently. When he looked again, the invader was gone. He had obviously shaken it to the floor, and on the floor somewhere it must still be. The idea perturbed him and he decided to take his writing out to the summer-house and give orders later that the library was to be thoroughly swept. Ah, it was good to be out of doors, and in a pleasance so delightfully laid out, so exquisitely kept as his. In the basin of the fountain the sea-nymphs of rosy-veined marble clustered round a thetis as beautiful as Aphrodite herself, the lightest and featheriest of acacia trees swayed near, and as the owner of all this went past over the weedless turf, he repeated snatches of Verlaine to himself about 
svelte jedo, and sanglo d'extas. Then, turning his head to look back at the fountain, he became aware of a little dark brown object, about the size of a halfpenny, running towards him over the velvet-smooth sward. He believed afterwards that he must have had a glimpse of the truth at that instant in the garden, or he would not have acted so instinctively as he did, and so promptly. For a moment later he was standing at the edge of the basin of Thetis, his face blanched in the sunshine, his hand firmly clenched. Inside that closed hand something feather-soft pulsated, holding back as best he could the disgust and something more which clutched at him. Augustine Marchant stooped and plunged his whole fist into the bubbling water and let the stream of the fountain whirl away what he had picked up. Then, with uncertain steps, he went and sat down on the nearest seat and shut his eyes. After a while he took out his lawn handkerchief and carefully dried his hand with the intaglio ring, dried it, and then looked curiously at the palm. I didn't know I had so much courage, he was thinking, so much courage and good sense. It would doubtless drown very quickly. Burroughs, his butler, was coming over the lawn. Mr. and Mrs. Morrison have arrived, sir. Ah, yes, I had forgotten for the moment. Augustine Marchant got up and walked towards the house and his guests, throwing back his shoulders and practising his famous enigmatic smile for Mrs. Morrison was a woman worth impressing. But what had it been, exactly? Why, just what it had looked, a, a tuft of fur blowing over the grass. A tuft of fur, sheer imagination that it had moved in his closed hand with a life of its own. Then why had he shut his eyes as he stooped and made a grab at it? Thank God, thank God, it was nothing now but a drenched smear swirling round the nymphs of Thetis. Ah, dear lady, you must forgive me. Unpardonable of me not to be in to receive you. He was in the drawing-room now, fragrant with its bank of hothouse flowers, bending over the hand of the fashionably attired guest on the sofa in her tight bodice and voluminous sleeves, with a flyaway hat perched at a rakish angle on her golden-brown hair. Your man told us that you were writing in the garden, said her goggle-eyed husband reverentially. Cher maître, it is we who ought not to be interrupting your rendezvous with the muse, returned Mrs. Morrison in her sweet high voice. Terrible to bring you from such company into that of mere visitors. Running his hand through his carefully tended locks, the cher maître replied, Between a visit from the muse and one from beauty's self, no true poet would hesitate. Moreover, luncheon awaits us, and I trust it is a good one. He liked faintly to shock fair admirers by admitting that he cared for the pleasures of the table. It was quite safe to do so, since none of them had sufficient acumen to see that it was true. The luncheon was excellent, for Augustine kept an admirable cook. Afterwards he showed his guests over the library, yes, even though it had not received the sweeping, which would now be unnecessary, and round the garden and in the summer-house, was prevailed upon to read some of Amor Cypriacus aloud, and Mrs. Francis, uh, nowadays Francesca, 
Morrison, was thereafter able to recount to envious friends how the poet himself had read her stanza after stanza from that most daring poem of his, and how poor Fred, fanning himself meanwhile with his straw hat, not from the turidity of the verse, but because of the afternoon heat, said afterwards that he had not understood a single word. A good thing, perhaps. When they had gone, Augustine Marchant reflected rather cynically, all that was so much bunkum when I wrote it. For ten years ago, in spite of those audacious glowing verses, he was an ignorant neophyte. Of course, since then, he smiled a private, sly, self-satisfied smile. It was certainly pleasant to know oneself no longer a fraud. Returning to the summer-house to fetch his poems, he saw what he took to be Mrs. Morrison's fur boa lying on the floor, just by the basket-chair which she had occupied. Odd of her not to have missed it on departure, a tribute to his verses, perhaps. His housekeeper must send it after her by post. But just at that moment his head gardener approached, desiring some instructions, and when the matter was settled, and Augustine Marchant turned once more to enter the summer-house, he found that he had been mistaken about the drop boa, for there was nothing on the floor. Suddenly he knew why. A lattice in the house of memory had opened, and he remained rigid, staring out at the jets of the fountain rising and falling in the afternoon sun. Yes, of that glamorous, wonderful, abominable night in Prague. The part he least wished to recall was connected, uh, incidentally but undeniably, with a fur boa, a long boa of dark fur. He had to go up to town next day, to a dinner in his honour. There and then he decided to go up that same night by a late train, a most unusual proceeding, and most disturbing to his valet, who knew that it was doubtful whether he could, at such short notice, procure him a first-class carriage to himself. However, Augustine Marchant went, and even, to the man's amazement, deliberately chose a compartment with another occupant, when he might, after all, have had an empty one. The dinner was brilliant. Augustine had never spoken better. Next day he went round to the little street not far from the British Museum, where he found Lawrence Storey, his new illustrator, working feverishly at his drawings for Queen Theodora and Queen Marosia, and quite overwhelmed at the honour of a personal visit. Augustine was very kind to him, and, while offering a few criticisms, highly praised his delineation of these two Messalinas of tenth-century Rome, their long, supple hands their heavy eyes, their full, almost repellent mouths. Story had followed the same type for mother and daughter, but with a subtle difference. They were certainly two most evil women, especially the younger, he observed ingenuously. But I suppose that from an artistic point of view, that doesn't matter nowadays. Augustine, smoking one of his special cigarettes, made a delicate little gesture. My dear fellow, art has nothing whatever to do with what is called morality. Happily, we know that at last. Show me how you thought of depicting the scene where Marosia orders the execution of her mother's papal paramour. Good, very good. Yes, the lines there, even the fall of that loose sleeve from the extended arm, 
express with clarity what I had in mind. You have great gifts. I, I, I've tried to make her look wicked, said the young man, reddening with pleasure. But, he added deprecatingly, it's very hard for a ridiculously inexperienced person like myself to have the right artistic vision. For to you, Mr. Marchant, who have penetrated into such wonderful arcana of the forbidden, it would be foolish to pretend to be other than I am. How do you know that I have penetrated into any such arcana? inquired the poet, half shutting his eyes and looking, though not to the almost worshipping gaze of young Story, like a great cat being stroked. Why, one only has to read you. You must come down and stay with me soon, were Augustine Marchant's parting words. He would give the boy a few days good living, for which he would be none the worse, let him drink some decent wine. How soon do you think you'll be able to finish the rough sketches for the rest, and the designs for the cul de lampe? A fortnight, or three weeks? Good. I shall look to see you then. Good-bye, my dear fellow. I am very, very much pleased with what you have shown me. The worst of going up to London from the country was that one was apt to catch a cold in town. When he got back, Augustine Marchant was almost sure that this misfortune had befallen him, so he ordered a fire in his bedroom, despite the season, and consumed a recherché little supper in seclusion. And as the cold turned out to have been imaginary, he was very comfortable, sitting there in his silken dressing-gown, toasting his toes and holding up a glass of golden tokay to the flames. Really, Theodora and Marozia would make as much sensation when it came out with these illustrations as when it first appeared. All at once he set down his glass. Not far away, on his left, stood a big cheval mirror, like a woman's, in which a good portion of the bed behind him was reflected. And in this mirror he had just seen the valance of the bed move. There could be no draught to speak of in this warm room. He never allowed a cat into the house, and it was quite impossible that there should be a rat about. If, after all, some stray cat should have got in, it must be ejected at once. Augustine hitched round in his chair to look at the actual bed hanging. Yes, the topaz-hued silk valance again swung, very slightly, outwards, as though it were being pushed. Augustine bent forward to the bell-pull to summon his valet. Then the flask of toque rolled over on the table as he leapt from his chair instead. Something like a huge dark caterpillar was emerging very slowly from under his bed, moving as a caterpillar moves, with undulations running over it. Where its head should have been was merely a tapering end smaller than the rest of it, but of like substance. It was a dark fur boa. Augustine Marchant felt that he screamed, but he could not have done so, for his tongue clave to the roof of his mouth. He merely stood, staring staring, all the blood gone from his heart. Still, very slowly, the thing continued to creep out from under the valance, waving that eyeless, tapering end to and fro, as though uncertain where to proceed. I'm going mad, 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 thought Augustine, 
And then, with a revulsion, No, it can't be. It's a real snake of some kind. That could be dealt with. He snatched up the poker as the boa thing, still swaying the head, which was no head, kept pouring steadily out from under the lifted yellow frill until quite three feet were clear of the bed. Then he fell upon it furiously with blow after blow. But they had no effect on the furry, spineless thing. It merely gave under them and rippled up in another place. Augustine hit the bed, the floor. At last, really screaming, he threw down his weapon and fell upon the thick hairy rope with both hands, crushing it together into a mass. There was little, if any, resistance in it, hurled it into the fire and, panting, kept it down with shovel and tongs. The flames licked up instantly and, with a roar, made short work of it. Though there seemed to be some slight effort to escape, which was perhaps only the effect of the heat. A moment later there was a very strong smell of burnt hair, and that was all. Augustine Merchant seized the fallen flask of Toke and drained from its mouth what little was left in the bottom. Ere staggering to the bed, he flung himself upon it and buried his face in the pillows, even heaping them over his head as if he could thus stifle the memory of what he had seen. He kept his bed next morning. The supposed cold afforded a good pretext. Long before the maid came in to relay the fire, he had crawled out to make sure that there were no traces left of what he had burnt there. There were none. A nightmare could not have left a trace, he told himself. But well he knew that it was not a nightmare. And now he could think of nothing but that room in Prague and the long fur boa of the woman. Some department of his mind, he supposed, must have projected that thing, scarcely noticed at the time, scarcely remembered, into the present and the here. It was terrible to think that one's mind possessed such dark, unknown powers, but not so terrible as if the apparition had been endowed with an entirely separate, objective existence. In a day or two he would consult his doctor and ask him to give him a tonic, but expostulated an uncomfortably lucid part of his brain. You're trying to run with the hare and hunt with the hounds. Is it not better to believe that the thing had an objective existence, for you have burnt it to nothing? Well and good. But if it is merely a projection from your own mind, what is to prevent it from reappearing, like the phoenix from ashes? There seemed no answer to that, save in an attempt to persuade himself that he had been feverish last night. Work was the best antidote. So Augustine Marchant rose, and was surprised and delighted to find the atmosphere of his study unusually soothing and inspiring, and that day, against all expectation, salutation to all unbeliefs was completed by some stanzas with which he was not too ill-pleased. Realising, nevertheless, that he should be glad of company that evening, he had earlier sent round a note to the local solicitor, a good fellow, to come and dine with him, played a game of billiards with the lawyer afterwards, and retired to bed after some vintage port and a good stiff whisky and soda with scarcely a thought of the visitant of the previous night. He woke at that hour 
when the thrushes in early summer punctually greet the new day, three o'clock. They were greeting it even vociferously, and Augustine Marchant was annoyed with their enthusiasm. His golden damask window curtains kept out all but the glimmer of the new day, yet, as lying upon his back the poet opened his eyes for a moment, his only half-awakened sense of vision reported something swinging to and fro in the dimness, like a pendulum of rope. It was indistinct, but seemed to be hanging from the tester of the bed, and wide awake in an instant with an unspeakable anguish of premonition tearing through him, he felt next moment a light thud on the coverlet about the level of his knees. Something had arrived on the bed, and Augustine Marchant neither shrieked nor leapt from his bed, he could not, yet now that his eyes were grown used to the twilight of the room, he saw it clearly, the fur rope which he had burnt to extinction two nights ago, dark and shining as before, rippling with a gentle movement as it coiled itself neatly together in the place where it had struck the bed, and subsided there in a symmetrical round, with only that tapering end a little raised, and, as it were, looking at him, only eyeless and featureless, it could not look. One thought of disgusted relief that it was not at any rate going to attack him, and Augustine Marchant fainted. Yet his swoon must have merged into sleep, for he woke in a more or less ordinary fashion to find his man placing his early tea-tray beside him and inquiring when he should draw his bath. There was nothing on the bed. I, I shall change my bedroom, thought Augustine to himself, looking at the haggard, fallen-eyed man who faced him in the mirror as he shaved. No, better still, I shall go away for a change. Then I shall not have these uh, dreams. I'll go to old Edgar Fortescue for a few days. He begged me again not long ago to come at any time. So to the house of that old Mycenas he went. He was much too great a man now to be in need of Sir Edgar's patronage. It was homage which he received there, both from host and guests. The stay did much to soothe his scarified nerves. Unfortunately, the last day undid the good of all the foregoing ones. Sir Edgar possessed a pretty young wife, his third, and among other charms in his place at Somerset, an apple orchard underplanted with flowers. And in the cool of the evening, Augustine walked there with his host and hostess, almost as if he were the Almighty with the dwellers in Eden. Presently they sat down upon a rustic seat, but a very comfortable one, under the shade of the apple boughs, amid the incongruous but pleasant parterre. "'You've come at the wrong season for these apple-trees, Marchant,' observed Sir Edgar after a while, taking out his cigar. "'Blossom-time or apple-time, they are showy at either, in spite of the underplanting.' What is attracting you on that tree? A tit? We have all kinds here, pretty destructive little beggars. Uh, I didn't know that I was looking. It's nothing. Uh, thinking of something else, stammered the poet. 
Surely he had been mistaken in thinking that he had seen a sinuous, dark, furry thing undulating like a caterpillar down the stem of that particular apple tree at a few yards' distance. Talk went on, even his own. There was safety in it. It was only the breeze which faintly rustled that bed of heliotrope behind the seat. Augustine wanted desperately to get up and leave the orchard, but neither Sir Edgar nor his wife seemed disposed to move, and so the poet remained. At his end of the seat, his left hand playing nervously with a long bent of grass which had escaped the scythe. All at once he felt a tickling sensation on the back of his hand, looked down, and saw that featureless snout of fur protruding upwards from underneath the rustic bench and sweeping itself backwards and forwards against his hand with a movement which was almost caressing. He was on his feet in a flash. Do you mind if I go in? he asked abruptly. I I I'm not feeling very well. If the thing could follow him, it was of no use to go away. He returned to Abbot's Medding, looking so much the worse for his change of air that Burroughs expressed a respectful hope that he was not indisposed. And almost the first thing that occurred when Augustine sat down at his writing-table to attend to his correspondence was the unwinding of itself from one of its curved legs of a soft, brown, oscillating serpent which slowly waved and ended him, as if in welcome. In welcome, yes, that was it. The creature, incredible though it was, the creature seemed glad to see him. Standing at the other end of the room, his hands pressed over his eyes, for what was the use of attempting to hurt or destroy it, Augustine Marchant thought shudderingly that like a witch's cat, a familiar would not, presumably, be ill-disposed towards its master. Its master. Oh, God! The hysteria which he had been trying to keep down began to mount uncontrollably when, removing his hands, Augustine glanced again towards his writing-table and saw that the boa had coiled itself in his chair and was sweeping its end to and fro over the back, somewhat in the way a cat, purring meanwhile, rubs itself against furniture or a human leg in real or simulated affection. Oh, go away, go away from there, he suddenly screamed at it, advancing with an outstretched hand. In the devil's name, get out! To his utter amazement, he was obeyed. The rhythmic movement ceased. The first snake poured itself down out of the chair and writhed towards the door. Venturing back to his writing-table after a moment, Augustine saw it coiled on the threshold, the blind end turned towards him as usual, as though watching, and he began to laugh. What would happen if he rang and someone came? Would the opening door scrape it aside? Would it vanish? Had it, in short, an existence for anyone else but himself? But he dared not make the experiment. He left the room by the French window, feeling that he could never enter the house again. And perhaps, had it not been for the horrible knowledge just acquired that it could follow him, he might easily have gone away for good from Abbot's Medding and all its treasures and comforts. But of what use would that be? And how should he account for so extraordinary an action? No, 
he must think and plan while he yet remained sane. To what, then, could he have recourse? The black magic in which he had dabbled with such disastrous consequences might possibly help him. Left to himself he was but an amateur, but he had a number of books. There was also that other realm whose boundaries sometimes marched side by side with magic, religion. But how could he pray to a deity in whom he did not believe? Rather pray to the evil which had sent this curse upon him to show him how to banish it. Yet since he had deliberately followed what religion stigmatized as sin, what even the world would label as lust and necromancy, supplication to the dark powers was not likely to deliver him from them. They must somehow be outwitted, circumvented. He kept his grimoires and books of the kind in a locked bookcase in another room, not in his study. In that room he sat up till midnight, but the spells which he read were useless. Moreover, he did not really believe in them. The irony of the situation was that, in a sense, he had only played at sorcery. It had but lent a spice to sensuality. He wandered wretchedly about the room, dreading at any moment to see his familiar wreathed round some object in it. At last he stopped at a small bookcase, which held some old forgotten books of his mother's, Longfellow and Mrs. Heman's John Halifax Gentleman, and a good many volumes of sermons and mild essays. And when he looked at that blameless assembly, a cloud seemed to pass over Augustine Marchant's vision, and he saw his mother gentle and lace-capped, as years and years ago she used to sit, hearing his lessons in an antimacassar chair. She had been everything to him then, the little boy whose soul was not smirched. He called silently to her now, Mamma, Mamma, can't you help me? Can't you send this thing away? When the cloud had passed, he found that he had stretched out his hand and removed a big book. Looking at it, he saw that it was her Bible, with Sarah Amelia Marchant on the faded yellow fly-leaf. Her spirit was going to help him. He turned over a page or two, and out of the largish print there sprang instantly at him, Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Augustine shuddered and almost put the Bible back, but the conviction that there was help there urged him to go on. He turned a few more pages of Genesis, and his eyes were caught by this verse, which he had never seen before in his life. And if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted, and if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. What strange words! What could they possibly mean? Was there light for him in them? Unto thee shall be his desire, that thing, the loathsome semblance of affection which hung about it, thou shalt rule over him. It had obeyed him, up to a point. Was this book of all others showing him the way to be free? But the meaning of this verse was so obscure. He had not naturally such a thing as a commentary in the house. Yet, when he came to think of it, he remembered that some pious and anonymous person soon after the publication of Pomegranates of Sin had sent him a Bible in the revised version, with an inscription recommending him to read it. He had it somewhere, though he had always meant to get rid of it. 
After twenty minutes' search through the sleeping house, he found it in one of the spare bedrooms, but it gave him little enlightenment, for there was scant difference in the rendering, save that for lieth at the door, this version had coucheth, and that the margin held an alternative translation for the end of the verse, and unto thee is its desire, but thou shouldest rule over it. Nevertheless, Augustine Marchant stood after midnight in this silent sheeted guest-chamber, repeating, But thou shouldest rule over it. And all at once he thought of a way of escape. 2. It was going to be a marvellous experience staying with Augustine Marchant. Sometimes Lawrence Storey hoped there would be no other guests at Abbot's Medding, at other times he hoped there would be, a tete-a-tete of four days with the great poet. Could he sustain his share worthily? For Lawrence, despite the remarkable artistic gifts which were finding their first real flowering in these illustrations to Augustine's poem, was still unspoiled, still capable of wonder and admiration, still humble and almost naive. It was still astonishing to him that he, an architect's assistant, should have been snatched away as Ganymede by the eagle from the lower world of elevations and drains to serve on Olympus. It was not, indeed, Augustine Marchant who had first discovered him, but it was Augustine Marchant who was going to make him famous. The telegraph poles flitted past the second-class carriage window, and more than one traveller glanced with a certain envy and admiration at the fair, good-looking young man who diffused such an impression of happiness and candour, and had such a charming smile on his boyish lips. He carried with him a portfolio which he never let out of reach of his hand. The oldish couple opposite, speculating upon its contents, might have changed their opinion of him, had they seen them. But no shadow of the dark weariness of things unlawful rested on Lawrence's story. To know Augustine Marchant, to be illustrating his great poem, to have learnt from him that art and morality had no kinship, this was to plunge into a new realm of freedom and enlarging experience. Augustine Marchant's poetry, he felt, had already taught his hand what his brain and heart knew nothing of. There was a dog-cart to meet him at the station, and in the scented June evening he was driven with a beating heart past meadows and hayfields to his destination. Mr. Marchant, awaiting him in the hall, was at his most charming. My dear fellow, are those the drawings? Come, let us lock them away at once in my safe. If you had brought me diamonds, I should not be one quarter so concerned about thieves. And did you have a comfortable journey? I've had you put in the orange room. It's next to mine. There is no one else staying here, but there are a few people coming to dinner to meet you. There was only just time to dress for dinner, so that Lawrence did not get an opportunity to study his host until he saw him seated at the head of the table. Then he was immediately struck by the fact that he looked curiously ill. His face, ordinarily by no means attenuated, seemed to have fallen in. There were dark circles under his eyes, and the perturbed Lawrence, observing him as the meal progressed, thought that his manner too seemed strange, and once or twice quite absent-minded. And there was one moment when, though the lady on his right was addressing him, he sharply turned his head away and looked down at the side of his chair, just as if he saw something on the floor. Then he apologised, saying that he had a horror of cats, and that sometimes the tiresome animal from the stables. 
but after that he continued to entertain his guests in his own inimitable way, and even to the shy Lawrence the evening proved very pleasant. The three ensuing days were wonderful and exciting to the young artist. Days of uninterrupted contact with a master mind which acknowledged, as the poet himself admitted, none of the petty barriers which man, for his own convenience, had set up between alleged right and wrong. Lawrence had learnt why his host did not look well. It was loss of sleep, the price exacted by inspiration. He had a new poetic drama shaping in his mind, which would scale heights that he had not yet attempted. There was almost a touch of fever in the young man's dreams tonight, his last night but one. He had several. First, he was standing by the edge of a sort of mere, inexpressibly desolate and unfriendly, a place he'd never seen in his life, which yet seemed in some way familiar. And something said to him, You will never go away from here. He was alarmed and woke, but went to sleep again almost immediately, and this time was back, oddly enough, in the church where in his earliest years he had been taken to service by the aunt who had brought him up, a large church full of pitch-pine pews with narrow ledges for hymn-books, which ledges he used surreptitiously to lick during the long, dull periods of occultation upon his knees. But most of all he remembered the window with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, on either side of an apple-tree, round whose trunk was coiled a monstrous snake with a semi-human head. Lawrence had hated and dreaded that window, and because of it he would never go near an orchard and had no temptation to steal apples. Now he was back in that church again, staring at the window, lit up with some infernal glow from behind. He woke again, little short of terrified. He, a grown man. But again, he went to sleep quite quickly. His third dream had for background, as sometimes happens in nightmares, the very room in which he lay. He dreamt that a door opened in the wall, and in the doorway, quite plain against the light from another room behind him, stood Augustine Marchant in his dressing-gown. He was looking down at something on the ground which Lawrence didn't see, but his hand was pointing at Lawrence in the bed, and he was saying in a voice of command, Go to him! Do you hear? Go to him! Go to him! Am I not your master? And Lawrence, who could neither move nor utter a syllable, wondered uneasily what this could be which was thus commanded but his attention was chiefly focused on Augustine Marchant's face. After he had said these words several times, and apparently without result, a dreadful change came upon it, a look of the most unutterable despair. It seemed visibly to age and wither. He said in a loud, penetrating whisper, Is there no escape, then? Covered his ravaged face a moment with his hands, and then went back and softly closed the door. At that Lawrence woke but in the morning he had forgotten all three dreams. The tete-a-tete dinner on the last night of his stay would have lingered in a gourmet's memory, so that it was a pity the young man did not know in the least what he was eating. At last there was happening what he had scarcely dared hope for. The great poet of the sensuous was revealing to him some of the unimaginably strange and secret sources of his inspiration. In the shaded rosy candlelight his elbows on the table among trails of flowers, he, who was not even a neophyte, 
listened like a man learning for the first time of some spell of spring which will make him more than mortal. Yes, said Augustine Marchant, after a long pause, yes, it was an, a marvellous, uh, an undying experience, one that is not given to many. It opened doors, but I despair of doing it justice in mere words. His look was transfigured, almost dreamy. But um, she, the woman, how did you... asked Lawrence Story in a hushed voice. Oh, the woman, said Augustine, suddenly finishing off his wine. Uh, the woman was only a common streetwalker. A moment or two later, Lawrence was looking at his host wonderingly and wistfully. But this was in Prague. Uh, Prague is a long way off. One does not need to go so far in reality. Even in Paris. One could have that experience in Paris. If you know where to go. And, of course, it is necessary to have credentials. I mean that, like all such enlightenments, it has to be kept secret most secret from the vulgar minds who lay their restrictions on the finer. That is self-evident. Of course, said the young man and sighed deeply. His host looked at him affectionately. You, my dear Lawrence, I, I may call you Lawrence, want just that touch of, uh, what shall I call them, the chose cachet, to liberate your immense artistic gifts from the shackles which still bind them. Through that gateway, you would find the possibility of their full fruition. It would fertilize your genius to a still finer blossoming. But you would have scruples. And you are very young. You know, said Lawrence in a low and trembling tone, what I feel about your poetry. You know how I ache to lay the best that is in me at your feet. If only I could make my drawings for the two queens more worthy— Already it's an honour which overwhelms me that you should have selected me to do them. But they are not what they should be. I am not sufficiently liberated. Augustine leant forward on the flower-decked table. His eyes were glowing. Do you truly desire to be? The young man nodded, too full of emotion to find his voice. The poet got up, went over to a cabinet in a corner, and unlocked it. Lawrence watched his fine figure in a sort of trance. Then he half rose with an exclamation. "'What is it?' asked Augustine, very sharply facing round. "'Oh, nothing, sir, only I believe you hate cats, and uh, I thought I saw one, or rather its tail, disappearing into that corner.' "'There's no cat here,' said Augustine quickly. His face had become all shiny and mottled, but Lawrence didn't notice it. The poet stood a moment, looking at the carpet. One might almost have thought that he was gathering resolution to cross it. Then he came swiftly back to the table. Sit down again, he commanded. Have you a pocket-book with you, a pocket-book which you never leave about? Good. Then write this in one place, and this on another page. Write it small, among other entries is best, not on a blank page. Write it in Greek characters, if you know them. What? "'What is it?' asked Lawrence, all at once intolerably excited, his eyes fixed on the piece of paper in Augustine's hand, the two halves of the address in Paris. 3. Augustine Marchant kept a diary in those days, a locked diary written in cipher, and for more than a month after Lawrence Story's visit, the tenor of the entries there was almost identical. No change. 
always with me. How much longer can I endure it? The alteration in my looks is being remarked upon to my face. I shall have to get rid of Thornton, his man, on some pretext or other, for I begin to think that he has seen it. No wonder, since it follows me about like a dog, when it is visible to everyone, it will be the end. I found it in bed with me this morning, pressed up against me, as if for warmth. But there was a different class of entry also, appearing at intervals, with an ever-increasing note of impatience. Will L.S. go there? When shall I hear from L.S.? Will the experiment do what I think? It is my last hope. Then, suddenly, after five weeks had elapsed, an entry in a trembling hand. For twenty-four hours I have seen no sign of it. Can it be possible? And, next day, still nothing. I begin to live again. This evening has come an ecstatic letter from L.S. from Paris, telling me that he had presented his credentials and was to have the experience next day. He has had it by now, uh, by yesterday, in fact. Have I really freed myself? It looks like it. In one week from the date of that last entry, it was remarked in Abbot's Medding how much better Mr. Marchant was looking again. Of late he had not seemed at all himself. His cheeks had fallen in, his clothes seemed to hang loosely upon him, which had generally filled them so well, and he appeared nervous. Now he was as before, cheery, courtly, debonair. And last Sunday, will you believe it, he went to church. The rector was so astonished when he first became aware of him from the pulpit that he nearly forgot to give out his text, and the poet joined in the hymns too. Several observed this amazing phenomenon. It was the day after this unwonted appearance at St. Peter's. Augustine was strolling in his garden. The air had a new savour, the sun a new light. He could look again with pleasure at Thetis and her nymphs of the fountain, could work undisturbed in the summer-house. Free! Free! All the world was good to the senses once again, and the hues and scents of early autumn better, in truth, than the brilliance of that summer month which had seen his curse descend upon him. The butler brought him out a letter with a French stamp, from Lawrence Story, of course, to tell him what. Where had he caught his first glimpse of it? In one of those oppressively furnished French bedrooms, and how had he taken it? At first, however, Augustine was not sure that the letter was from Story. The writing was very different, cramped instead of flowing, and in places spluttering, the pen having dug into the paper as if the hand which held it had not been entirely under control. Almost, thought Augustine, his eyes shining with excitement, almost as though something had been twined, liana-like round the wrist. He had a sudden sick recollection of a day when that had happened to him, quickly submerged in a gush of eager anticipation. Sitting down upon the edge of the fountain, he read, not quite, what he had looked for. I don't know what's happening to me, began the letter without another opening. Yesterday I was at a cafe by myself and had just ordered some absinthe, though I do not like it. And quite suddenly, although I knew that I was in the cafe, I realised that I was also back in that room. I could see every feature of it, but I could see the café too, with all the people in it. The one was, as it were, superimposed upon the other, the room, which was a good deal smaller than the café, being inside the latter, 
as a box maybe within a larger box. And all the while the room was growing clearer, uh, the cafe fading. I saw the glass of absinthe suddenly standing on nothing, as it were. All the furniture of the room, all the accessories you know of, were mixed up with the chairs and tables of the cafe. I do not know how I managed to find my way to the comptoir, pay and get out. I took a fiacre back to my hotel. By the time I arrived there, I was all right. I suppose that it was only the after-effects of a very strange and violent emotional experience. But I hope to God that it will not recur. How interesting, said Augustine Marchant, dabbling his hand in the swirling water where he had once drowned a piece of dark fluff. And why indeed should I have expected that it would couch at his door in the same form as at mine? Four days later, more of the newfound peace, and he was reading this. In God's name, or the devil's, come over and help me. I have hardly an hour by night or day when I am sure of my whereabouts. I could not risk the journey back to England alone. It is like being imprisoned in some kind of infernal half-transparent box, always growing a little smaller. Wherever I go now, I carry it about with me, and when I am in the street, I hardly know which is the pavement and which is the roadway, because I am always treading on that black carpet with the cabalistic designs. If I speak to anyone, they may suddenly disappear from sight. To attempt to work is naturally useless. I would consult a doctor, but that would mean telling him everything. I hope to God he won't do that, muttered Augustine uneasily. He can't. He swore to absolute secrecy. I hadn't bargained, however, for his ceasing work. Suppose he finds himself unable to complete the designs for Theodore and Marozia. That would be serious. However, to have freed myself is worth any sacrifice. But story cannot obviously go on living indefinitely on two planes at once. Artistically, though, it might inspire him to something quite unprecedented. I'll write to him and point that out. It might encourage him. But go near him in person. Is it likely? The next day was one of great literary activity. Augustine was so deeply immersed in his new poetical drama that he neglected his correspondence and almost his meals except his dinner, which seemed that evening to be shared most agreeably and excitingly by these new creations of his brain. Such, in fact, was his preoccupation with them that it was not until he finished the savoury and poured out a glass of his superlative port that he remembered a telegram which had been handed to him as he came into dinner. It still lay unopened by his plate. Now, tearing apart the envelope, he read with growing bewilderment these words above his publisher's names. Please inform us immediately what steps to take. Are prepared? Send to France recover drawings, if possible. What suggestions can you make as to successor, Russell and Ward? Augustine was more than bewildered. He was stupefied. Had some accident befallen Lawrence's story, of which he knew nothing? But he had opened all his letters this morning, though he had not answered any. A prey to a sudden, very nasty anxiety, he got up and rang the bell. Burroughs, bring me the Times from the library. The newspaper came unopened. Augustine, now in a frenzy of uneasiness, scanned the pages rapidly. But it was some seconds before he came upon the headline. Tragic death of young English artist. 
and read the following, furnished by the Paris correspondent. Connoisseurs who were looking forward to the appearance of the superb illustrated edition of Mr. Augustine Marchant's Queen Theodora and Queen Marosia will learn with great regret of the death by drowning of the gifted young artist Mr. Lawrence Storey, who was engaged upon the designs for it. Mr. Storey had recently been staying in Paris, but left one day last week for a remote spot in Brittany. It was supposed in pursuance of his work. On Friday last, his body was discovered floating in a lonely pool near Carré. It is hard to see how Mr. Storey could have fallen in, since this piece of water, the Mare de Plougouven, has a completely level shore surrounded by reeds and is not in itself very deep, nor is there any boat upon it. It is said that the unfortunate young Englishman had been somewhat strange in his manner recently, and complained of hallucinations. It is therefore possible that under their influence he deliberately waded out into the Mare de Plougouven. A strange feature of the case is that he had fastened round him under his coat the finished drawings for Mr. Marchant's book, which were, of course, completely spoilt by the water before the body was found. It is to be hoped that they were not the only... Augustine threw the times furiously from him and struck the dinner-table with his clenched fist. Upon my soul, that is too much! It is criminal! My property! And I, who had done so much for him, fastened them round himself? He must have been crazy! But had he been so crazy? When his wrath had subsided a little, Augustine could not but ask himself whether the young artist had not, in some awful moment of insight, guessed the truth, or a part of it, that his patron had deliberately corrupted him. It looked almost like it. But if he had really taken all the finished drawings with him to this place in Brittany, what an unspeakably mean trick of revenge thus to destroy them! Yet, even if it were so, their loss must be regarded as the price of deliverance, since, from his point of view, the desperate expedient of passing on his familiar had been a complete success. By getting someone else to plunge even deeper than he had done into the unlawful, for he had seen to it that Lawrence Storey should do that, he had proved, as that verse in Genesis said, that he had rule over what had pursued him in tangible form as a consequence of his own night in Prague. He could not be too thankful. The literary world might well be thankful too, for his own art was of infinitely more importance than the subservient, the parasitic art of an illustrator. He could with a little search find half a dozen just as gifted as that poor hallucination-ridden story to finish Theodora and Marosia, even, if necessary, to begin an entirely fresh set of drawings. And meanwhile, in the new lease of creative energy which this unfortunate but necessary sacrifice had made possible for him, he would begin to put on paper the masterpiece which was now taking brilliant shape in his liberated mind. A final glass, and then an evening in the workshop. Augustine poured out some port, and was raising the glass, prepared to drink to his own success, 
when he thought he heard a sound near the door. He looked over his shoulder. Next instant the stem of the wine-glass had snapped in his hand, and he had sprung back to the farthest limit of the room, reared up for quite five feet against the door, huge, dark, sleeked with wet and flecked with bits of green waterweed, was something, half python, half gigantic cobra, its head drawn back as if to strike. Its head, for in its former featureless tapering end were now two reddish eyes, such as the furriers put into the heads of stuffed creatures, and these eyes were fixed upon him in an unwavering and malevolent glare. Everybody dies, don't they? So that was couching at the door, and we now know what couching at the door means. It means lying at the door. Uh, it must be an old-fashioned. Well, it is, as we hear in the story. It's a, it's a, an archaic translation of part of the Bible by D. K. Broster or Broster. I've chosen to say Broster. The um, it was recommended by a patron, and he had said to me that um, you could get it quite cheaply. And I looked on the internet, it was like 48, 50 pounds for the book, uh, the hardback copy. Uh, and then I remembered that I'd been in a bookshop in Aberystwyth in the summer and had picked up a big pile of the, uh, the Wordsworth uh, thrift editions, Tales of Mystery and the Supernatural. No, it's, they're not called that, but the, there was a whole bunch of them. So, um, and I realized I already had it. So I didn't know, I didn't know the story. I mean, I picked it up. I like the cover. There's a skeleton, as we used to say when we were small, on the cover. And uh, I picked it, DK Bros. Didn't know much about DK Bros. So let's find out about good old DK. As my source on this, I'm going to turn to Matt Cowan's uh, website, Horror Delve. If you don't know Horror Delve and you're interested in this kind of story, the kind of stories that we read here, then I think you would like it. And Matt Cowan's indefatigable. He's, he's put together a tremendous amount of stuff on the genre. So let's, uh, let's read what he has to say. And he actually wrote this on August the 10th, which is my dad's birthday, and actually my wedding day, although I'm no longer married. So uh, it was a good day um, by Matt Cowan. 2015, yeah, sorry, I got slightly sidetracked by that thought. So, although she's been largely forgotten these days, D.K. Broster, 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 Brewster, not Brewster, Broster, was a phenomenal writer of short horror stories. Couching at the Door has been reprinted many times, but I don't feel it's her best, says Matt. Why Clairvoyance, The Window, or From the Abyss hasn't been reprinted uh, multiple times over the years is a mystery to me. I absolutely love these tales and found they hold up strong even today. So I should say that he, he isn't the, you know, other people do like this story. Clearly the people who anthologize it like it. And um, my patron, um, I don't know if he wants me to say his name, but uh, he, he, I don't know why he wouldn't, but, uh, but I haven't got his permission, so I won't. He, uh, he really liked it. Okay. 
So, um, Dorothy Kathleen Broster was born in England in 1877. She was a novelist and short story writer who wrote under the name D.K. Broster. This is very fashionable, isn't it? J.R.R. Tolkien, J.K. Rowling, C.P. Snow, M.R. James, E.F. Benson. I've missed the trick. I should be J.A. Walker. Um, what was that? L.P. Hartley, you know? Um, fly Fishing. No, no, no. L.P. Hartley wrote... Um, a lot of good horror stories. Anyway, digressed already. Phew. Anyway, back to DK. Or Dorothy, as I prefer her. She worked as a Red Cross nurse during World War One and wrote a number of successful historical novels. If you look on eBay, remember I was looking for her book, there's lots of kind of Highland stuff. So, um, Couching at the Door, 1933, that's really interesting. Matt summarised it as this. I mean, it won't hurt to do this because you've just heard the story. If by some bizarre chance you have skip the story to my waffle first then this is a spoiler but i can't imagine anybody would do that so uh, yeah matt says a poet who spent his younger years writing things considered shocking by the general public begins to notice he's being visited by a mysterious fur boa he realizes it's after him there was something slightly comic about that due to some dark deed he did years ago and devises a plan to transfer it from him to someone else I particularly enjoy some of the dream images described within. Yeah, those three dreams that uh, the that Lawrence Story um, had. So, yeah, interesting. 1933. Why is that interesting? Well, because she wrote this as a historical story, you know. Um, she was born. Let me just give you some biogs. She was born in um, Liverpool. In 1877, so in the 1890s, she was just a young woman. She may remember that, you know, how old would you be? So, so she was in her teens in the 1890s. But you do remember the 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 decade that you grew up in in your teens. For me, primarily, it was I was in my 20s in the 80s, and I was in my teens in the in the 70s, really. So I I remember the 70s, you know, and she would remember the 1890s. Let's go back to why that is important. Because of the decadent movement. So what I was saying is when you write a historical story, you use little props to situate it. You can, you know, tell you who's amazing at this is Jonathan Coe, uh, the book like The House of Sleep. And what was the other one about with the trade unionists? And he just takes you back to that time by reminding you of things that you, like brand names and things on the TV and certain little, you know, like eight track not in that case, you know, but this is what you do. So she wants us to go back to the 1890s and she wants us to situate this character within the decadent movement. She mentions the Yellow Book. So the Yellow Book was a leading journal of the, Brit of the British 1890s associated with aestheticism, aestheticism, for you to say, illustrated by Aubrey Beardsley, famous illustrator associated with decadence. So the decadent movement was, um, oh yeah, and of course, relevant to this, though Oscar Wilde didn't publish anything in the Yellow Book. You can see the Oscar Wilde in this. If you've, um, if the portrait, the portrait of, um, or picture of jo um, Dorian Gray, which I've done, of course, you could go and listen to my version of that. Um, you know, these aesthetic lords, although uh, our man here is a little bit of a, of a, 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 new, a newcomer, a parvenu, um, you know, he's a bit of a scoundrel, but, you know, writing things to shock, you can see the Wildian influence, wild, you can, she's read Oscar Wilde is what I'm trying to say, 
and she's reminding you and she's writing it like that and she's it's a sounds you know when she go in the beginning and they mention the the yellow damask curtains and the the certain furniture and it's very wild in it and the eh, not so much wild's very good at mentioning flowers and books and japanese art and he situates his stuff but he was writing of his own time of course and i think she's deliberately doing that i think that that uh, illusion an unspoken allusion to everybody who's going to be reading that in 1933 is going to think of Oscar Wilde, you know. Uh, so she's the yellow book, Decadence. What was Decadence? I remember going to uh, an exhibition of um, decadent art in Vienna in the Schönbrunn and uh, Palace, and it was amazing. Uh, so let's say the decadent movement from the French decadence decay was a late 19th century artistic and literary movement centered in Western Europe. So, you know, uh, France, Germany, um, Austria, obviously, um, and the UK, um, and, uh, you know, I'm guessing Holland and places like that. So the decadent movement first flourished in France and then spread throughout Europe into the United States. The movement was characterized by a belief in the superiority of human fantasy, so fantasy is important, and aesthetic hedonism. So, the, you know, like Oscar Wilde, of course, prizes, and particularly the portrait of Dorian Gray, you know, this, the prizing beauty and aestheticism, and also hedonism. So, you know, lying around, doing nothing, drinking wine, taking laudanum and opium, you know, that was what they aimed for. So the concept of decadence, um, uh, reading this from the 18th century, from the writings of Montesquieu, uh, the Enlightenment philosopher, who, dis who suggested that the decline of the Roman Empire was in large part due to its moral decay and loss of cultural standards. But the problem, not the problem, but the counterpoint to that in, 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 in the 1890s, it was, in France particularly, this rejection of progress, a, a seeking decadence. So the first major development in French decadence appeared when writers Théophile Gautier, and we've done his Clarimonde and Charles Baudelaire, Flowers of Evil, great. I used to carry, you can imagine me carrying a copy in French, of course. It was, I think it was dual language of the Flowers of Evil, um, Le Fleur du Mal, and um, in my pocket. And, you know, it's all about um, corpses and vampires and graves and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and Clarimonde, of course, if you read that, go on, if you haven't heard my Clarimonde, my Clarimonde, she wasn't my Clarimonde. Um, if you haven't, go and read. You know, I'm not saying listen to me, but listen to somebody's or read it. Actually, do the old, the old, old school way and read it. But um, so the point is this: they, and and this is what I'm going to say now. So if, if you read Baudelaire, the great prophet of decadence, the literary. You know, it is about the corpse and carrion. He's got one called carrion, and it's, it's about succubi and vampires and graves and all of that, and just this kind of reveling in it. Now, the French, particularly, more than any of the other lot, were interested in Satanism and the and the uh, the figure of Satan, and so, and this is. Brought out in France, particularly in um, Oismans. I don't never know how to say that because it's a Dutch name, but he was French. H U Y S M A N S. And as far as I can see, the French pronunciation is Wismas. 
So uh, it's, it's hard, eh? It's hard to say that. So Joris Karl, Karl is in the French. So Joris, Joris, Joris. Not jo- anyway. I'm kind of getting a lot. He's most famous for the novel. This is Ismans. He's most famous for the novel Arebour, against uh, the grain or against nature. And uh, so the point about this is in this book, it's about Satanism, basically, and black masses. So just to put some pins in dates, Baudelaire um, is born in 1821, dies in 1867, and The Flowers of Evil, Le Fleur du Mal, was published in 1857, so it's before the flowering of decadence, but it's clearly related to it um, and leads up to it, you know. And then Aribour, um Against Nature, was published in 1884, so just a precursor, so just a precursor to a very, not very long before the flowering of the decadent, hedonistic, decadent music, music, I keep saying music, um, movement. So you see where I'm going with this. So this is basically um, Our Lady Dorothy Broster, and she is situating this story deliberately in the past, and she's using these cultural references that the people who are reading her stories um, would know. And one of them is the Oscar Wildean decadence thing, you know, the aesthete. The lazy, and they just write poetry and make a ton of money writing poetry and uh, have yellow damask, this, that, and the other, and fancy uh, glasses, and uh, everything's luxurious, and they're rich and decadent and ligaboot, as we would say, lie about. I remember reading uh, in English Against the Grain, Against Nature by um, Ousmas um, in uh, my 20s when I was, I read a lot of French and Russian and stuff, German literature, because I thought you had to improve yourself. Um, I'm not sure I believe that now. Um, I think you should probably just read what you like now. But in those days, I thought, well, I need to furnish. I need to furnish my mind, a well-furnished mind. So clearly, and you know, um, in Wikipedia says it is Arebour is uh, Usman's Arebour is the. Um, that uh, you know clearly uh, an example, uh, an inspiring work for Oscar Wilde's *A Picture of Dorian Gray* and is an example of decadent literature because the the person in it, um, Jean Desaisentes, is an eccentric, reclusive, ailing aesthete. They're always a bit ill. A lot of things. The last scion of an ar- aristocratic family, Desaisentes loathes nineteenth-century bourgeois society and tries to retreat into an ideal artistic world of his own creation. So you can see. Our man Augustine Marchand, who of course Frenchifies his name, he's Augustus, and he and he and he, he um, makes it more French. So, and a, a key point of Usman's work, this novel Arebour, is um, Satanism, and this is the implication. And I'm labouring this a little bit. I want to I want to pull in one other writer who may be referred to here. I'm not sure that uh, Dorothy uh, Broster would have known of him, but let's mention him. And it is um, Gustav Meyrink, who, from Vienna, and was Austrian, but he set, he lived in Prague for 20 years, and his most famous book, he, he wrote a lot of kind of quasi-mystical books, and he was interested in the occult as well, which is um, 
relevant to this, isn't it? This character here. And it's the Prague. It makes me think of this. So his most famous book is The Golem. Um, again, again, a great book. I didn't read it in German. I read it in English. I would like to. If I was, if I was on a desert island, you know this desert island, this, which two books would you take? I'd take probably Proust's um, Remembrance of Things Past, which I have read. It took me a year to read it. 1995, I read the whole thing. Um, and, uh, you know, the sad thing about that is, you know, you forget so much of it now. So you read it, 1995. Yes, phew, put that pin in the map. Um, that's crossed off your bucket list. Uh, and now, all these years later, do you remember much about it? Well, I remember a bit about it, but I don't remember it in any detail. So that is shows the futility of trying to furnish your mind, really, because uh, you forget everything. But um, so, yeah, so the golem was published in German, and he wrote it between 1907-1914, and that was Mehring's most famous work. I'm not sure she... I don't know, she may have known. You know, she was writing this in 1933, so it's possible that she could have um, got herself a copy of The Golem. And, and I mentioned The Golem and Mehring because the Prague setting, because these things happened in Prague, and because he was an occultist. I mean, there were various occultists running around Prague. It's a very occulty sort of city. Um, and Paris, of course, um, in, you know, so after all of that, that's I'm just kind of building my case to say this is a delib- this is deliberately situated story that we have this unpleasant, east, decadent aesthete poet who lives sort of like an Oscar Wilde character, but he's got influences from the French decadence, particularly that say, and I think it's never explained what, what terrible thing he did in Prague. Um, but the, I think the inference I draw from it, the implication is in there that uh, this common streetwalker woman was murdered. I think, and and the whole thing, and I think she is she's a very bright woman, Dorothy Broster, and you can see that. And I think what she's saying is she's poking fun at the decadence, and she says he didn't, he doesn't believe in God, Augustine, uh, and you know. He he doesn't he didn't believe in his sorcery either. It was just a pose. It was just like all the ascetic stuff that didn't. It's like I hope there's none of you listening out here, but it's like goths, isn't it? You know, um, or you know, most it's it's a fashion. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I I would love to go to a pirate festival. There is one at Whitby, and dress as a pirate and go around going oh, or 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 or. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But people can, and I'm not talking about goths now, I'm talking about the decadence. They kind of took themselves really seriously. And like with all things, there will have been a, a, um, a stream of people or a thread of people who really believed in the philosophy of it. And it was like, a, like a, a, an ongoing corruption of romanticism. So romanticism, if you think, is an earlier thing, late 1700s, early 1800s, and flowers after that. And it's a, it's the whole thing is a reaction against the Enlightenment values and what we might call and has been called. And I can't remember who said this, but it's a good phrase: the disenchantment of the world. So our our medieval and pre-medieval ancestors lived in a world that was full of it was alive. God was alive. There were saints. There were spirits. There were ghosts. There were witches, and uh, it, the whole world was alive. And then and then particularly in this in, in the nineteenth century. Coming up from, I mean, Wordsworth, who was a great romantic, one of the first generation romantics, he, um, you know, ha- was very kind of mystical, really. He was a, a nature mystic, really. And it's about that. And I, it seems to me that humans are 
uh, or our culture is um, what's our culture? Well, do you know the one we are in now um, is is split between rationalists, the physicalist, the materialist, the rationalist, technocratic, technological. The world is that you know Richard Dawkins is you know the blind watchmaker. It's just a the, the universe is a dead machine. It just spins. It has no meaning. And uh, and then we have the romantics and us probably who are listening to this because I think if you listen to this kind of story, you're probably a romantic really. Um, and we believe that the universe is alive and it's full of supernatural things and natural things and essence. And we we are more inclined to believe in spirits and angels and gods and nature creatures and stuff like that you know people who like this kind of story this is not the first time i've banged on about romanticism because of course romanticism gives way to the gothic and the gothic kind of then gives way to the decadent and it's almost like um, it gets it's kind of it's like horror movies remember in the 80s and that was gore you have to go one better you have to go one gorier if you cut one man's head off you've got to cut 16 men's head, and then you've got to do worse things with them and and um i actually think the this is a slight digression. Detective stories go the same. If you go back to the 1950s and you have uh, the Lavender Hill mob and all this, the, the crime stories are bank robberies and uh, robberies. That's it. That's the crime. The police are trying to, you know, Dixon of Doc Green. It's all, it's that, what's it about? And then murders. Ah, what's worse than a murder? Well, a rape, potentially. A rape murder. Oh, horrible. And then we have to go to children murders and then we get into all that awful child abuse stuff and. And I think it's the same thing. It's just, it, I just, it, it's not for me. I don't want to, I have enough of that at work, to be honest, of the horror of, of life. I don't want it. Um, but people love it, and true crime is massive. Biggest podcasts in the world nearly are all about true crime and murderers and things like that, and, and the more twisted and sick. So in a way, that is like the decadence. It was like um, the romantics believed in nature, the gothics loved all the clanking ghosts and the chains and the decadence <laughs> were into Satan and the occult and not just, you know, love charms, but in fact, black magic. So this is relevant to this story, I think, in that um, she's making, f she is actually underlining that point I just made to say, you know, the decadence just went too far. They didn't believe it. They were, they were, uh, as um, Sartre would say we're not in good faith you know so you know okay Jean-Paul Sartre we're having a very French we're having a bit of a French um she was dropping loads of French in wasn't she so bad faith or mauvais foi um is the failure to exercise integrity and autonomy so yeah okay this isn't quite what I see in, in and I think what Dorothy um Brost is saying what she's saying is even his Satanism was in bad faith and bad faith is is the opposite in Sartre's world of freedom. Uh, it's the it's the opposite of freedom. So you've got to act in good faith. You've got to act authentically. Uh, and and so jumping across to and I talk about this as well. So we've got a story, and she set it up, and I've talked about the influences, the decadent, and those just looks across to Oscar Wilde, the aesthetic side of Oscar Wilde, but also potentially Mayrink and the occultism. And also, you know, Usman, uh, uh, his um, Satan, you know, his novels about the aesthete actually going into Satanism because it's that next thrill. It's the, it's you know, you've done everything, so you've you're so decadent. Nothing 
pleases your jaded palate anymore. So you just have to go a bit further. But you're not. But the the thing is, you don't do it in authentically. You don't really believe it, and um, and that is the sin. Yeah. So I've often talked about um, this genre, monster in the house, and we talked about uh, Blake Snyder's um, Hollywood writing manual. Uh, save the cat and he's he's he breaks all stories down into genres lots of people do this you know there are lots of um people who say there's only seven kinds of stories in fact you know i've read most of those books that say that and uh but blake snyder says you know horror movies are their genre the story is always monster in the house in the monster in the house there is a monster we've seen the monster it's a feather boa it becomes a kind of evil snake at the end it gets fed and um, the sin is, yeah, it's, there are a couple of sins that Augustine Marchant does that, and, and one certainly is bad faith. So he dabbled with, with the murder, probably, to, to please his jaded palate with this awful, decadent, aesthetic view that all of this hedonism was liberty and was, you know, it was the ultimate aesthetic. So he says that the moral and the, you know, I don't know if he says the moral and the beautiful are not connected. Um, He's trying to kind of say that, you know, against what the Greeks said, you know, beauty and beauty and truth. And I think I've probably kind of misdone that. But, um, but you know, basically, actually feed your horribleness, feed evil because it will help your art. I think basically that's what they're saying. And she, Dorothy, is saying, no, 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 no. And then, and then, so we've got all of that, the bad faith, the inauthenticity, which is the sin which allows the monster in, along, according to the sin always lets the monster in, in, uh, in this genre. And this, that's his sin. He's authentic. Of course, his sin is he participated in a murder, apparently a, a casual murder, um, like some kind of snuff thing to, to um, anyway, we won't get into conspiracy theories because there's lots of conspiracy theories at the moment, which I don't actually, I don't go that far, to be honest, um, that the elites do this now, the so-called elites, the globalist elites who fly around the world. And many people actually sincerely believe this. Other people sincerely don't believe it. Um, and that uh, they kill children. And, uh, you know, we, let's not get into that. Because it is dark, isn't it? But, I mean, I suppose this is a, we read horror stories, so sometimes we go dark. Uh, even though, in a funny way, horror stories, ghost stories are actually quite cosy. Like, like detective stories are cosy too, old-fashioned, you know. Um, so we're not being cosy at the moment because we're saying some um, kind of shocking things, really. But I think that's what it's about. And she is poking fun, not poking fun, but poking needles in this this horrible decadence that this this horrible man. Augustine Marchant, who is vile, he's uh, narcissistic. Well, he's a narcissist, isn't he? Um, he puffs himself up. He's so full of himself. He writes codswallop and um, revels in people's um, admiration, even though they are probably doing it in bad faith as well. It's just fashion, 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 um, David Bowie said. Uh, so, <laughs> so um, yeah, okay. That's what the story's about. The other crime then is that he has no, he's no courage. He's a coward. He's a narcissistic, inauthentic, shallow, vile coward. 
and he has this very talented young man who he basically corrupts, and that I suppose is like portrait of um, Dorian Gray as well, and this artist who he corrupts. But the artist, in a sense, I think what what it said towards the end is that uh, young Lawrence Story sussed out what had happened to him, that he'd been corrupted on purpose, and his revenge was to destroy the pictures. Now, the question is, were the pictures made better by this dabbling with the occult? Um, I don't think she says that. Um, I don't think that is in the story. You may see that there. You may say, yes, actually, it it did work, and it made them both more um, inspired by and we could oof, that's a very interesting thought i mean you know another of my if you listen to me a lot you'll hear me talk about jung and carl jung's idea of the shadow and the idea that we've all got shadows and we need to come to terms with our with the darkness inside us and in, in in fact once we do we stop cutting it off and, and projecting it out into other people and we start to own it a little it can be um, vivifying and fructifying those are good words, and maybe inspiring, you know. But we've got to keep tight hold of it. Jung never says let go. Jung never says just become your shadow, because that is what he would call a possession by your shadow, and it's definitely not the thing to do. It must be brought in within consciousness. It must be brought in to the to the egoic sphere so that we're aware of it, of our darkness as well. But it, to be aware of our darkness is actually um, it's some kind of it has a fertilizing effect on our lives. Uh, we no longer deny it. We no longer blame other people and go, look, it's not me, it's you, mate, you know? Uh, anyway, so so that's an interesting question. Does the satanic evil actually um, inspire Augustine Marchand to write good poetry? I don't think, I think the jury's out on that. I don't think she says that. Uh, I think it's slightly more strongly hinted, but not very strongly hinted that it does, it does inspire Lawrence Story, but Lawrence Story denies it in the end and takes, takes the... Um, the fruit of his evil and says, I'm not having it. I'm going to kill myself. I think that's, that's the conclusion. So, um, so Augustine Marchant is, is just irredeemably vile. And of course, one of the things about ghost stories and horror stories is, um, they are moral tales. Most stories are moral and they tell us how we should behave. And, and what we see is this horrible man who we invited to dislike, um, get his comeuppance. Uh, for his crimes, and that is the moral story. Bad things happen to bad people in stories. Um, sometimes in real life, that isn't true, is it? You know, bad good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. Um, but in stories, which is um, what is that line? A kiss isn't the truth, but it's what we wish was true. And so, stories. Uh, Steve Martin said that in some movie. I can't remember. Somebody will know. Um, so this is what we wish were true. We wished bad, evil, narcissistic, cowardly, inauthentic, vile, cruel, murdering people. We wish that they got punished and we wish that the good are rewarded. So that's what we want to be true. And, and that's what this story is. And this story delivers on that. Um... I the only I think one of the drawbacks for me was talking about the flip side of it. So I thought I like the aesthetic side of it. I think it's a very intelligent story. Um, the the moral tale is perhaps predictable. You know, bad guy gets pun bad guy's horrible gets punished. Yeah, I've done it myself. You know, I'm not saying, but it, I don't think it, it's great literature. 
because um, it doesn't do anything different. It it just it's a it's good, you know. It does it does the thing. We we enjoyed our trip, but um, it wasn't didn't change us in any way. I don't think because we know all this stuff anyway. It's not like it's told us anything new. Um, but I think it was a it was a pleasant diversion. If you know, pleasant isn't the word, but an entertaining diversion. Uh, the only thing for me was this idea of this um, boa thing floating around. Because I don't know if you remember those, you can get those like slinky furry snakes with strings and you can make them dance. That's all I saw there. I just saw that. It wasn't frightening at all to me. And I think somebody like M.R. James, if you look, and I keep coming back to this story as well, whistle, oh, whistle and I'll come to, come to you. And um, he has flapping linen and it's like, oh, God, that's horrible, you know? Whereas, in a sense, this in, uh, inanimate, or animate as it turns out, but weird material is a, this kind of feather boa, which I guess is something to do with belong to the common street walker, and I'm guessing she was murdered with it or something. I'm guessing she was strangled with it or something. I think that's, I don't know, but uh, I think that's what it is. But, you know, to me, it didn't, I didn't go, oh, that's weird. I went, that's kind of borderline laughable. Uh, at the end, the snake... Mm, okay, that leads to another thing. Symbolism in this um, is, there's another strand in this, which is the reference to the Garden of Eden, and he talks about, she talks about when Augustine Marchand and the late Lord so-and-so and his wife are in the orchard, and the, the thing appears there. So, and he, he, there's an explicit reference to the Garden of Eden there. She says it's like uh, he, he was, yeah, he's the narcissist, Augustine Marchand, was taking the place of God walking um, in the cool of the day, you know, cool of the evening, uh, with um, Adam and Eve, the Lord and Lady. So there's that. And I think the serpent at the end is, that is, I think that's deliberately put in by her. I don't think it's just something that's popped up out of the unconscious. I think she's deliberately put that in. And um, it's, it's got eyes by the end. So if we consider the serpent is the creature that persuaded Eve to eat from the tree of good and evil and thus know good and evil. God had said, don't do that. And then people were thrown out of paradise because now we know good and evil. Now we are aware of good and evil. We can, there's a lot in that, of course. Uh, and we could talk about that for another hour or two and we'll never come to the end of it. But um, I think at first it has no head. It doesn't know where it's going. And it isn't malevolent. Um, really, I don't understand that really, but it isn't, and it seems to like him. It is familiar, she says, and at the end, it is definitely malevolent. It is infused then, I think, with the the revenge and the punishment for his mistreatment of the innocent and talented, and that makes perhaps we might say that um, Lawrence Story's loss is even greater because he was innocent. And he was completely led down up the garden path by Augustine Marchant. Marchant, uh, and um, but he was very talented, so his talent had gone to waste in the in the um, sea in Brittany or in the pool in Brittany. Um, and the this creature at the end, it has button eyes that a furrier uh, would put on, but it's becoming more lifelike, isn't it? It's be it's becoming more embodied as a serpent. Um, and we may then see the serpent as the devil, and that might then 
be exactly what um, Augustine Marchant was messing around with in Prague, and therefore that is, you know, you, yeah, what they say, um, you, you speak the devil's name and here he appears. What is the proper quote of that? I like it really, so I'm going to get it right. Yeah, I was nearly right. Speak of the devil and he doth appear. So um, there you go. So I think that's what the story is about. So there's a lot in it, actually. Um, I say I don't think it's fantastic literature because there's no real, there's nothing really transformative there. But um, I think it's full of really nice imagery. And she's a smart writer. She's her intelligence shows through. I love, I like the symbolism in it, which of course is, um, you know, the symbolists were related to the decadence. The symbolist movement was related to the decadence, and uh, so, yeah, okay, we can we can see that in there as well. The use of her, the use of symbolism that she uses, uh, and so yeah, I thought it was a good story. Uh, right, I've got nothing much to say. Well, you know what? There's, I could tell you about the dogs and. Ruby being spooked by the um, fireworks and bolting and me thinking I'd lost her. Um, and uh, we're going to have to swap because she's coming into season, so she's going to have to go back to her mother uh, and we're going to have her sister, Callie, uh, for Jack because she's not in season. So her and Jasper Jasper and Callie, they're all littermates, um, but um, Shade, their mother, is uh, is the matriarch, and when she sees him, she bosses all. And you know, she's quite savage—not savage, but you know, she's tough with her children and knocks them about. And uh, so they cower in front of her because she's she's the toughie, you know. So Ruby's gonna be put in her place, no more being spoiled by us. And Callie will be spoiled by us, you know. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, you know, little grandson will be here on Tuesday. I'm looking forward to that as well. I was uh, one nice thing was I was sitting on the um, couch. I maybe said this somewhere, looking out the window, and uh, Jasper, who's who's he's ten months old, and little grandson who's um, eleven. No, he's just turned one. So they were both st- side by side looking out the window, and there was nothing really, nothing happening of any interest. Cars were going by and stuff, and they were entranced by it, and they were full of this. Um, joy at life, both of them, the little dog and the little boy. And it kind, it kind of melted my heart, really, sitting next to them, seeing them. Um, so for all the nastiness in the world, there is a great wonder and joy as well. Um, yeah, nearly left you without a call to action. I used to do this all the time, didn't I, call to action? Well, I'm going to talk about my... Um, I'm going to try and sell you something. We've got merchandise. I've got this Etsy shop set up, and... Yeah, we've got merchandise, we've got badges, pins, as, as they call them in North America. Um, we have postcards, we have books. Now, the books are too heavy to ship across the Atlantic, or even the Irish Sea, as it turns out. So if you're in the UK and want a book, particularly I would try and sell you my um, Christmas ghost stories. Nice little present. I think it's £7. Um, just think of that little gift, and if you buy it from me, from my Etsy store, I'll, I'll write in to the person you wanted to. What an ideal gift that is. A postage as well on top. Now, I can't send those to the US or Canada or even Ireland or even France. They just cost too much money. But you, you can actually order my books now from your local bookstore. If you go in and say, um, no, Further Ghost Stories by Tony Walker. I'm working on a new set. 
but I, I've actually put my notice in for, uh, I've got two jobs, two psychiatric nursing jobs, and I'm going to jack one of them in. Um, other, you know, my mum is less, less well, and uh, do you know what? I, that part of my life is, is com coming to an end, so I'm finishing on the 29th of um, December. I still have one nursing job, but um, that'll only be a day and a bit. And I'm hoping then to have a day, a couple, have more time to write. Um, change the podcast over to the podcast as podcast, not the YouTube bit, has now been hosted by Megaphone, which is a company that's owned by Spotify. So, uh, and it's kind of gone onto the Spotify network. And I've seen a massive uptick in people what, uh, listening, because you just listen, don't you? on the podcast so that's great so i suppose yeah so it's all looking good it's a it's a transformation it's something i've wanted to do for a while so that's it yeah please buy my book <laughs> that's the final thing to say please buy my book you don't have to you've got no money fair enough i've had no money before and uh i did i, did, I think I probably did buy books to be fair um which was you know eat or buy a book well we're gonna have to buy a book i think um, and uh, then just get chips. Um, you may be very unwell, but at least you'll be well read. You'll furnish your mind, as we say. Anyway, when I get to this point, I think my thoughts are becoming even less jointed. Uh, it's time to go. So I hope you're all well. hope you enjoyed the story. Thanks for the recommendation. And, um, yeah, you'll be hearing from me soon. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?